Hello friends and welcome back to another episode of Stuck on Arrakis. Yay! Are you guys ready to finish Path of Daggers and move on to Winter's Heart? Because I am. <laughs> uh, so today we're going to be talking about the end of book eight, Path of Daggers. I can't actually remember what chapters, but I'm starting with answering the summons and I'm going all the way to the end. Like I said, I'm really excited to finish this book and move on to Winter's Heart. I actually kind of read like a couple paragraphs of Winter's Heart last night because I'm so excited to continue, especially with this banger of an ending. But before we do that, let's talk about our creator spotlight for this week. I don't know why I said week. I <laughs> don't do weekly episodes. <laughs> okay, creator spotlight for this episode <laughs> is uh, Weed of Time. Yes, you heard that right. Weed of Time. <laughs> they are a husband, wife, and their roommate. Um, they all get really high and eat a bunch of delicious sounding food. And they talk about the Wheel of Time. Their podcast is full spoilers, but some of their earlier episodes are probably okay for anyone listening to this podcast episode, because their no spoiler host is on book eight in their earliest episodes. So if you are, uh, if you've read the series before, you're fine, obviously. If you're only on book eight with me, then um, I would just make sure that you stay within the first couple of episodes and that they're marked no spo, uh, because that's their no spoiler host, they call her Nospo. Um, if she's listed in the description, then you're probably okay, but tread carefully. Anyway, I think you guys will really love them because they're fucking hilarious, and I'm in their Discord, and I really like their Discord, so uh, go give them some love. I don't think you'll be disappointed at all. Okay, let's get into it, but before we do, <laughs> I just noticed that Rand is wearing thigh-high boots on the cover of this book. Ooh, bitch. <laughs> Get it, Rand, with your fucking thigh-high boots. <laughs> uh, okay, all right, let's get started. <laughs> uh, but please keep in mind that Rand is really fabulous in this book with his fucking thigh-high boots. Okay, so let's start first with answering the summons, which is chapter something or another. <laughs> I think it's 22 or something like that. And this chapter is basically just introductions and setup. There's not a whole lot going on, but it really sets the stage for the rest of the end of the book. So we get kind of a hint that of Rand's next moves against the Shan Chan, and we get some hints as to what he's going to do about cleansing Sidene. And I say that, but we really don't get a lot of great hints, but we do get a couple. And then uh, Bashir comes back and entertains us with his Bashirness, and there isn't a whole lot of plot going on, but I, there are some really interesting little nuggets in this chapter, so I do want to spend a couple moments just looking at those. First, we have a name for the weather pattern in this chapter that's apparently causing all of these storms and winteriness or whatever, and the name is Simaros? Simaros? Something like that, and uh, that stands for the Great Winter Tempests. So it's kind of like El Nino and La Nina, I guess, out in the Pacific or something like that, which I think is pretty cool that it matches a weather pattern kind of that we know, um, even though it's coming from the south, I believe. Apparently the Ashman can keep rain from touching them with the one power, which is pretty neato. The Ashman also have a new logo, <laughs> uh, which is a black and white disc on a crimson circle, um, that's an image that we've seen a lot that represents uh, the one power in its past use, like the male and female half of the source. The dark one seals have that kind of yin and yang pattern on it. 
Um, it's on the banner of light, etc. So they're really embracing that symbol as part of their organization, I guess. The Ashaman are described in this chapter as being very proud of their station and arrogant and defiant. Um, it says they gloried in what they were, <laughs> which, um, you know, I've read enough uh, literature in my life to know that pride always comes before a downfall. Uh, so I'm a little bit concerned that they're all being so arrogant. But I mean, it could be just because they're men and they're part of a secret organization and they feel special or I mean, they're fucking powerful and terrifying. So yeah, I can see why they're arrogant, but that just seems like it might be a little bit of foreshadowing. But we'll see. The Ashaman are also coming up with all sorts of fucking names for themselves, which I actually noticed in the last book with Taim's title that he gave himself, but I honestly didn't know how to pronounce the root word, <laughs> and I didn't want to say it out loud and embarrass myself, but I think it's Mahail right? Mahail. <laughs> so Taim is Mahail, which means leader. And then there's another guy named Charles. <laughs> and his title is Soravan Mahail, I think. I actually listened to the audiobook just to make sure I could pronounce that right. And then I immediately forgot how to pronounce it. So that's what I'm going with. Soravan Mahail. I know that it sounds, it's like way better when somebody else says it. <laughs> but I prefer Charles. <laughs> Because what a fucking stupid name. <laughs> Whose name is Charles? If your name is Charles, I apologize for offending you. Anyway, <laughs> so Sora Van Mahail, or however you say it, apparently means storm leader. So the root word is Mahail, and the other word, I guess, means storm. But what the fuck does that even mean? Storm leader. What are you trying, what are you trying to say here? That you're like good at lightning or that you bring the storm or something like that? Um, in that case, I think that Rand is the real storm leader, but we'll talk about that later. <laughs> Apparently, Luz Theron is back and worse than ever. And I'm still not totally convinced that he's back and it's not just Rand's mine or something like that. Um, but I, I don't know. I feel like sometimes I have evidence for one and then sometimes I'll have evidence for the other. So I really have no fucking idea. I mean, we really don't even know if Lewis Theron was there in the first place, but I mean, he had to have been because we were getting all of his memories, but we also haven't seen any more or gotten any more of his memories. So I don't know. I don't know. I can't really tell if New Luce Theron is different than the one that we had before he just disappeared. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I'm not supposed to know because Rancher as fuck doesn't know. There is something really fucking weird going on between the two of them, though, because when Rand sees himself in his dreams, he sees a face that is sometimes his face and sometimes Luce Theron's face. But he also sees a face that is blurred and like vaguely familiar, but not the same as those two. And I don't know what's going on with this. I feel like there's something to this that I don't have the capability to understand yet. Like, for example, does this other presence have something to do with Moradin or the Dark One? Does Rand have ties to the Dark One I don't know about? And him breaking loose is starting to affect Rand's mind? Does this have something to do with the Balefire Stream Crossing incident, which is probably what it actually is, but I don't know. Does Rand have a mind trap, like I mentioned before, and that's what's going on here? I don't know. And it's something that I'm definitely going to be watching for as we go through the series, because 
Something is definitely fucking up, and you cannot convince me otherwise. So apparently, Rand's plans for the Shan Shan are to sweep them westward. So that's where he and his merry band of pranksters are off to now. And that merry band of pranksters includes a lot of nobles and their army, but we'll talk about that in just a second. He also mentions that not even the Ashaman knew exactly why he was moving his army, which I feel like I don't understand that. <laughs> because they're going to fight the Shanchan. Surely they know that they're going to fight the Shanchan. And it's not even like he keeps moving and goes off to another target or another place where he wants to do something else. He like goes back to Kyrian or something like that afterwards. So I don't really know what this is talking about at all. <laughs> While we're spending time with the nobles and Rand's army, we see a lot of the nobility and the uh, army and stuff talking about how it's about time Tyr got them's a king. <laughs> and, uh, I, this gives a little bit of weight to my theory that Darlin does something big to help Rand and Rand gives him uh, Tyr as a kingdom or something like that. He could also take it by force, but I seriously fucking doubt that anybody is going to take anything from Rand by force. So Another interesting thing in this chapter is that apparently Rand has learned at this point from battles hard won and lost that people die in war, so he should only take people he hates into battle, like every noble he's ever met, most of whom have sided against him and plotted against him. So that's who we have now, and I want to read something from the book really quickly. Please hold. Okay, here we go. So he says, this is what Rand says to Bashir, he says, if you're going to fight a battle, who better to pay the butcher's bill than men who want you dead? Anyway, it isn't soldiers who will win this battle. All they have to do is keep anyone from sneaking up on the Ashaman. Ooh, interesting. So first of all, I really enjoy that um, none of our friends are going into battle with Rand because yes, they surely will die like everybody else, you know, that Rand goes into battle with. I am a little bit upset that Bashir is with him because I like Bashir a lot and I don't want anything to happen to him. And there are quite a few of the Ashaman that I also don't want anything to happen to. But again, that's something that unfortunately we have to talk about later. I also can't tell in this chapter if Rand is getting jumpier and quicker to anger or if he's just lashing out all over the place because he's surrounded by idiots. And I think it might be a little bit of both, but honestly, like, <laughs> Rand is being such a dick to everyone. And I get it, they're stupid and they plot against him and they're only loyal to him because they feel like he could absolutely fucking annihilate them if they don't do what he says, which is absolutely the truth. But at the same time, like, I don't know. I hate seeing Rand act like that, where he's just jumpy and uh, upset and quick to anger and stuff like that. Rand is also almost completely unable to channel for any meaningful amount of time in this book without getting sick or feeling dizzy or whatever. And again, I think this is something to do with the stream cro the Balefire stream crossing incident. But <laughs> I was thinking, and I'm on book eight, and I feel like at this point, Rand has spent more time unable to channel than he has been able to channel. <laughs> like, first he couldn't, like I would say in the first book or two, or three, actually. <laughs> then he, like, kind of maybe could mostly, but he 
really couldn't at the same time. Then he got a little bit better, and then I would say Lord of Chaos and Crown of Swords, and probably even Fires of Heaven and maybe Shadow Rising. Well, yeah, he was okay in all of those. I think uh, Lord of Chaos and Crown of Swords were probably his peak channeling. But in this book, now we're back to him not being able to channel very well again. Now he just sucks at it again because of whatever's going on with him. He also sent Narishma on... Do I say Narishma? I think I say Narishma. Narishma? Narishma. Hmm. Let's go with Narishma. <laughs> Narishma is on some sort of mission that Rand has like weird feelings about, but that's kind of all we know at this point. At this point, I was like, man, I don't know what this is. It seems kind of scary. I hope it's something big that he has planned for the Shanchan. And I really hope that he doesn't disappoint me by getting dizzy and falling over. <laughs> uh, but we'll talk about that later. And then Rand's army against the Shan Chan is calling themselves the Legion of the Dragon, which I fucking love. That's like too much fantasy awesomeness for me in four words. <laughs> and like I mentioned earlier, apparently Rand plans on just letting the Ashaman completely fuck shit up and is only taking the army so that they can keep the Ashaman safe while they fuck shit up against the Shan Chan which is fucking cool. <laughs> I like anything that the uh, the Ashaman are involved in, except for, you know, later in the book. But again, we'll talk about that later. <laughs> and we also find out that Rand trusts Bashir with his life. And I actually understand this because I feel like Bashir, it's so funny when you think about their history, because Bashir came to, I don't, I don't remember if he was coming to like, capture Rand or defeat Rand or if he was like looking for Tyum. Something like that. He was he was very anti-man channeling until he met Rand and then now he's on Rand's side and they've been through a lot together and now they have this kind of bond where Rand trusts Bashir with his life and Rand is not somebody who trusts people easily, kind of, and especially not after the events in this book and again we'll talk about that later. Maybe I'll call this episode, we'll talk about that later. <laughs> Guess I keep saying it. But there's a, like I said, there, I think this chapter was mainly set up. Okay, let's move on to the next chapter, which is called Gathering Clouds. And this chapter has the Adam icon, which intrigued the fuck out of me when I saw it. The beginning of this chapter is really similar to the scene where we saw Egwene and the rebel Aes Sedai going to meet the Andoran army. The Ashaman and the Legion of the Dragon and Rand are looking real good for this. <laughs> Rand is all shined up and he says that he wants to let the Shan Chan know who had come to destroy them. Yes, Rand. Yes. Fuck them up. <laughs> At the beginning of this chapter, Rand notices that Sidene feels heavier and more tainted in this area. And again, I think this has something to do with the Bowl of Winds, but I'm really not sure at this point. So I guess we'll have to just keep an eye on that. That becomes a real theme in this last part of the book is tainted Sidene and what Rand chooses to do about it. But as you know, we're going to talk about that later. Rand also has whatever package or object Narishma went to get from wherever he went. I know now where he went, but we'll talk about that later. <laughs> and at this point, I was starting to realize that there's definitely something going on with this package that he has because of this. Let me read this to you. So he says, basically, every time he touches the package, 
Something wriggled across the outside of the void. Anticipation and maybe a touch of fear. Hmm. Okay, so every time he touches whatever this bundle is, something spiders on the outside of the void. And he says that it's fear and anticipation, but I think it's something else. And at this point, I was, you know, my thought process was, okay, whatever this is, it's a magic item. And whatever it is, all he has to do is be near it or touch it in order for it to start to affect him or him feel the effect of whatever this magical item is. I was right, but we'll talk about that later. (laughs) Rand is such a badass in this chapter, though, for real. He says that he wishes Simurag would show up so he could make her weep. Oh my god. And then he says that he's going to make the Shan Chan weep today, and I was way fucking here for this. I was so excited for him to fuck the Shanchan up, and he doesn't disappoint. Two of the nobles that he has in his army are women, and I don't actually really know how to pronounce their names, so I'm just gonna give it a shot. Anayella? 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 I don't know. Anayella, that's how I'm gonna say it. And then Ailil? 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 I don't know. (laughs) Those two. I'm just gonna call them the A-women or something like that. Um, anyway, so one of them, Analia, Analia, whatever, she tries to get out of going by mentioning that Rand has a soft spot for women, which shocks Rand. Like, the void collapses because he's just so stunned to hear her say that. And I was shocked too because, fuck, the last thing we need is for people trying to exploit Rand's weakness for women. And you fucking know the nobles will as soon as they find out. Which I guess has already happened, so great, fuck. Then once that's all out of the way, (laughs) the Ashaman make eight, eight gateways, and Rand's army start to move into Altera in the most badass way ever by going through these gateways. Like soldiers, Ashaman, carts, everything's going through these big gateways. And they're popping in and out of the gateways and scouting ahead and coming back and sending supply carts and soldiers, and everyone's going through their gateways, and it was such a fucking cool scene. Oh my god. I was so excited to see the power and the gateways used in such a way where um, Rand's army is able to travel so quickly and make up so much ground because they have these gateways that they can just go through. And apparently the reason the Ashaman can do this, where they're making all of these gateways to pop in and out of, it's because if they're traveling short distances and they don't really have to know the area that they're in very well in order to um, go through them, make the gateway and go through them to wherever they want to go. At one point, Rand has this kind of interesting and also concerning new symptom of his madness, which is paranoia. And he basically, he notices that Gedwin and Rochade are watching him with knowing smiles and that Deshiva was also watching him. And at this point, I was actually considering the fact that maybe this is just a sign of his madness because what isn't a sign of his madness at this point? But I actually know why they were giving him knowing looks. (laughs) And again, we'll talk about that later. (laughs) Uh, But Rand thinks that it might be the dreads, which is some sort of term that he got from Nynaeve about people who, I don't know, are paranoid of everyone and think that, you know, everybody's out to get them and stuff like that. So just general paranoia. And then, I guess, after that's all out of the way and Rand's army starts to march, maybe up the Path of Daggers? I don't actually know of this Path of Daggers, 
But um, they're walking and they see, I mean, basically the ruins of some ancient civilization. There's a big statue that's just crushed and the head is lying on the ground and it has an actual female statue with an actual crown of swords on her head and they walk right by it. And I'm assuming that this is the path of daggers because of her crown on her head, but I can't, I don't know. I don't remember if I really got confirmation of that or not, but... While they're making their way west into these mountains, an enemy archer just comes out of fucking nowhere and attempts to kill Rand, and Rand tries to defend himself, but he ends up struggling to keep Sidene from overwhelming and killing him, and, I mean, because he was unable to defend himself, he really should have died, but some random-ass birds just happened to fly close to the archer, and he flinched and missed Rand by just a hair. He flinched just enough to miss him, and then Rand was fine. Then Rand thinks that maybe Taver- being Taverin saved him, but we also know that Moradin is trying to keep him alive for now. Maybe until the last battle, but definitely for now. And I'm not saying that Moradin is out there looking out for Rand and making sure that he doesn't die, but he did do that before. <laughs> when Rand was fighting Samael and Shadar Logoth, Moradin just happened to be there to save him. And again, I don't know if that's coincidence or Moradin was actually following him around or if he was just there to like see Samael die or something like that. But that's something that I'm keeping in mind. Every time that Rand just happens to live through something, I'm gonna wonder if Moradin was involved because he was involved before. Anyway, after that whole ordeal happens, because Rand tried to channel, he gets really sick again, and it's not just him getting dizzy and feeling a little woozy. This time he leans over in his saddle and actually throws up on the ground, um, and I think several of the Ashaman were around that when it happened, so uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, that's not good. He's really fucking struggling with this dizziness, bale fire crossing stream incident, after effects, or whatever. Whatever's actually going on, it's really affecting quite badly right now, and he needs to figure it the fuck out quick, because we got a last battle to go to, man. We can't have you getting dizzy. <laughs> they find out moments later that the perp of the attack is Egan Pedros, which I might be saying his name right, but you guys know what I'm talking about. The leader of the rebel Ilianers. Ilianers? I don't know. How do you say that? Man, I'm really bad at pronouncing things today. <laughs> Anyway, um, so it we already know this guy. Rand already met him. He was such a fucking idiot, and now he's full of holes because he tried to kill rag- the Dragon Reborn. I don't know what possessed him to think that he could do that, but they look in his wallet or his coin sack <laughs> purse. I don't know. Is it wallet? And he has a bunch of Tarvalon crowns. So, for you know, Rand and I are, like, grasping our pearls over this because if he was paid by the Aes Sedai, then the Aes Sedai have now tried to kill Rand. But Bashir's like, that doesn't really mean anything because crowns are all over the place here. Uh, I have them in my wallet. A lot of people probably have them in their wallets, which is probably true. I think Bashir is often a good source of reason for Rand, and he definitely balances out Rand's paranoia and mistrust and the other things that he probably developed from Luz Theron um, always telling him to kill people and that he should kill people before they kill him. But that doesn't mean that somebody isn't trying to make it seem like the Aes Sedai had something to do with it by giving this guy a bunch of crowns in order to kill Rand. Um, So that's not something that I'm ruling out at all at this point because it's very possible. 
Egan Pedros probably had reason to kill Rand on his own, but, I mean, it's probably something more than that, as it usually is. Then we get a Sean Chan perspective, which is so exciting. I've been waiting for such a long time to get a Sean Chan perspective because I've been wanting to learn more about their culture and how their army works. I mean, I've gotten little glimpses of both of those, but this was really good for a more in-depth view of what the Sean Chan are all about. So the Sean Chan that we're with, I don't actually know how to pronounce his name, so I just call him Acid Bacon. <laughs> Acid Bacon <laughs> is part of the Ever Victorious Army, which is what they call themselves. And really, I love all the names that Sean Chan give to things, like their army, um, their seat of power is called the Crystal Throne, their journey across the ocean is called the Return, which is neat and totally makes sense and fits in with their lore. And we learn that Acid Bacon is part of the Forerunners, which I guess are like the first Sean Chan on the ground. They're like the first wave. And I don't really know what his rank is in the camp that he's in, but we know that he's one of the first one over, so he's probably got a little bit of clout behind his name. We also find out that there are Terraboners fighting with them on the side of the Sean Chan. And I actually gasped when I read this, <laughs> but it makes sense because... The Shantan are always making people swear oaths and shit like that, and with their amazing social programs that they apparently have in the cities that they con conquer, I'm not surprised at all that somebody wants to fight with them, especially when it's like, oh, you fight with us, or we're gonna fucking kill you, or something like that. So, not actually surprised the Terraboners are fighting with them, but at the same time, like, how dare you? Acid Bacon goes to see the Suldom and the Damani that they have in their camp. And all of them are in their tent having a great time together hanging out and completely ignoring the fact that one of them is on a fucking leash. I find it really horrifying that they're all just having a good cackle while one of them is on a fucking leash, but whatever. But I do think this is kind of weird because whenever Egwene was captured, they treated her like absolute shit. And I think it just kind of depends on the Suldom and it might also have something to do with the fact that um, Egwene is not a Sean Chan and she was a captured Aes Sedai in training and not one of their, like, bred Demone. Because I'm sure that women who have been Demone all their life know not to be that kind of way. And the Demone who were raised as Demone probably know their place. God, that's so disgusting. Know their place and accept you know, their place in the world and probably don't fight back. That's their position in life. And probably if they don't fight it, it makes it a lot easier for them. But it's still fucking disgusting. We also learned that all of the Suldom and the Damane in this camp got violently ill in Ebudar. And I'm wondering if this was Tainted Bowl Sidene water <laughs> or something like that. Um, I really think that that has something to do with it. But I'm not really sure. I'm not really sure why Sidene is fucking weird right now. I don't understand why uh, the Suldom and the Demai are getting sick. I don't know if those two things are related. I don't know what the cause of them is. I was also thinking the other day, like, my theory so far has been Sidene getting channeled. And I'm not actually really sure if that would affect women. But we know that Sidene can be cast on women and hurt them, but I don't know if it just being in the air can affect them or not. So that's just a big question mark for me right now, but it's definitely something that I'm keeping an eye on. 
Then we get to see something really cool. So I guess in order to communicate between the camps, the Shanchan have some sort of like Rakan messaging system where they will tie messages to streamers on their Rakan and then they will like fly over the camp and somebody will grab the message. And then whenever they need to send a message, they'll write the message, put it on a streamer, and then a Rakan writer hangs upside down and grabs the streamer so they can pass the message on to the next camp. Which is really, really cool. <laughs> I think Acid Bacon actually might be the leader of this group, or pretty high up, because he's the one that gets the message. And the message is, there's a force not 10 miles east of here, five or six times our number. And obviously, they're, they're talking about Rand's army. I don't actually know if Rand's army is five or six times their number, because the way that they're moving is probably going to make it seem like there are a lot more of them. Because if somebody sees 5,000 men, you know, to the east, and then somebody else sees 5,000 men even closer to them, they're going to assume that those are 10,000 men and not the same 5,000 men traveling so quickly across the mountains. Because, I mean, they're mountains. You can't travel quickly through the mountains, right? So Acid Bacon sends a message on the rockin. I don't know what it says, but I'm sure it's probably like, SOS, we're going to be fucking pounded soon if you guys don't come help us. Um, and then the rockin' flies away with it, and then that's the end of the chapter. Okay, now this book is starting to heat up quite a bit. <laughs> so the next chapter is called Fog of War, Storm of Battle, which I assumed was going to be fucking awesome, and it was. <laughs> so the transition between the previous chapter and this chapter is fucking incredible. I think it's some of Robert Jordan's best work, because in the previous chapter, we were with Acid Bacon, right? Acid Bacon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we were with Acid Bacon, and he knew that Rand's army was close, and he sent his message... And then this chapter starts with Rand's army combing through the remains of Acid Bacon's camp. And I think this is so effective because it's so sudden. Just like Acid Bacon barely had time to send his message out about Rand's army, we see him do so, and then the next moment we see their corpses without knowing what really happened in between. One second Acid Bacon is alive, and the next he's dead, and we can only imagine that it was a quick and violent death that they suffered once Rand's army came to attack them. We also find out that the bodies are broken and ripped apart by the Ashaman Sidene channeling. Holy fuck. We also learn <laughs> that this is the third day of the Shan Chan slaughter, so Rand has been fucking up Shan Chan for three days at this point, and Rand's side has lost some people. And one of those deaths Min actually saw in her visions, and it happened just like she said, just like they always do. And she's also seen the deaths of two other people that are still alive and traveling with them. So we know that they're going to die soon or at some point or something like that. This made me wonder, and I think I know the answer to this, but have Min's visions ever been wrong or will they ever be wrong? Because I feel like they are almost vague enough to where they end up being technically right every time. But I also, because this is pattern magic, I don't think that she really has the capability of being wrong because she just sees snippets of the pattern or something like that. And the pattern can't be wrong, right? Then some soldiers or Ashman or something, I can't remember, they bring Nerith, 
who is the same Suldam that we saw from before, who had the Damani that she was like petting or what the fuck ever. And she's been captured and taken to Rand. And she's pretty fucking distraught that her Damani is dead. But also, like, if you cared about her so much, maybe you wouldn't have fucking put her on a leash. But whatever, that's my personal opinion. <laughs> and she's also really angry. And she's like, spitting at them and hissing like an angry cat she's just furious because they killed the person that she had on a leash i guess god what the fuck ever i hate then we switch to another sean chan perspective this book is at this point is really building up nicely to this point um so there's obviously going to be a pretty fucking enormous showdown between rand and the sean chan and Jordan is really focusing on both sides of this battle, which is so cool because usually we only see it from like our team's perspective. And now we're seeing it from both. And I think the reason for that is, as we've talked about before, Robert Jordan was a is a veteran or was a veteran of Vietnam. And there were two sides to that war, two very important sides. And a lot of time we only get our perspective. But the... Vietnamese had their own reasons for also fighting and um, maybe they weren't right or maybe you don't agree with them but they still had their reasons and I think this is a very interesting way to show both sides of battles that Robert Jordan is so familiar with because he was a veteran and he really likes to tackle the problems and the consequences of war in different and interesting ways using his fantasy novels as a catalyst for that and I think this is really what we're seeing here. I really appreciate that we got both sides of this not just because I've been wondering who the Shan Chan are or anything like that but because I'm genuinely interested in what's going on on the other side of the battle. As you guys know we've talked about that before I like to see things from other perspectives as well. At this point I was really starting to wonder if this was going to be like the end of the Shan Chan for the series because Rand is on a fucking mission to annihilate them and Rand's missions are usually successful just by sheer force of will you know what I mean and Rand is powerful enough to kill a lot of people at once which we'll talk about later <laughs> um, so at this point I was wondering if the Shan Chan were gonna die in book eight and then we were gonna be done with them but I don't think that's true because I have kind of a spoiler in my head that I know is coming and so we can't possibly be seeing the end of the Shan Chan yet but here that's neither here nor there I mean it's not really a spoiler like the red door people told Matt that he was going to marry the daughter of nine moons we also heard a Shan Chan say that the daughter of nine moons was coming to Abu Dar they haven't met yet, and I'm pretty sure they're going to, so I don't think this is the end of the Shan Chan yet. But anyway, uh, now with we're with, I'm just going to call him Carid. I don't actually know how to pronounce his name. That doesn't sound right to me either, but fuck it. I don't have time to figure this out right now. <laughs> also, you guys probably don't give a shit how I pronounce this guy's name. But anyway, with we're with Carid, and he's some type of Shan Chan bigwig in a different Shan Chan camp. And this camp has Terraboners. Alterans, Amadisians, and Shan Chan. So this is a much bigger and much more diverse army. They also have uh, Suldam and Damane. So this is a pretty stacked force that we're going up against here. And we get some more really cool information about the Shan Chan. So Karid is a Death Watch guard, which is apparently the private guard for the Empress. And I don't think the Empress is here with them. 
So I'm not really sure why they were sent out um, when they should be probably protecting the Empress or whatever. But anyway, that's not the point. The point is that they have fucking Ogier in the Death Watch Guard. Ogier! Ogier in the Shantian Death Watch Guard. What the fuck? How does that even happen? They are so different, apparently, than our lovely Loyal and the Ogier that we know. And we also know that these Death Guards are slaves. So the Ogier are also Shan-Chan slaves. That is so wild. I was not expecting that at all. I thought that all of the Ogier were book-loving, tree-hugging, steading-bound creatures who never even left the steading ever. So I thought it was really crazy that the Shan-Chan have them fighting in some organization called the the Death Guard. (laughs) Anyway, Carrot spends some time trying to puzzle out their predicament. How is this enemy army traveling? Why are they moving so fast? Um, At one point, he thinks that they might be Alterans, which surprises him because they aren't known to work together. And he also thinks that Rand's army is 40,000 strong, and I know how many people are in Rand's army, and it's not fucking even close to 40,000 people. But it's that movement that they're using to get across the mountains that, you know, people don't expect them to move as quickly as they are. So it must be, if somebody's saying an army closer to, I don't know, the east, and then they're also seeing an army so close to the west, then that must mean that that army stretches all the way across, not that they're just moving really fast. But anyway, Kara's army gets completely blindsided and utterly annihilated by Rand's army quite suddenly, which is kind of a theme here. Um, a lot of the Shantian really don't know that Rand's coming. And that almost feels like a cheap way to do battle because they're not even having enough time to defend themselves. But at the same time, fuck the Shantian. We get to see some of the weaves that the Ashaman are using during these battles. Um, they're using some sort of heavy artillery that will absolutely fuck up anything that it hits. And they're making the ground erupt, and there's lightning, and there's some of that make people explode shit thrown in. <laughs> and then Carid manages to escape this battle with his life. And I can assume that he's going to go tell somebody else about this army that's just annihilated his entire camp. Then we're back with Rand, and Rand is sitting on his horse watching the fight with Flynn and Deshiva, which he does a lot of in this book. He does a lot of sitting on his horse and watching because he can't do anything. And he also does a lot of almost dying, but we'll talk about that later. (laughs) At this point, Rand has been slaughtering the Shan-Chan for five days. They've killed three of the Rockin, or maybe the bigger ones. I don't really know. I also don't know if Rand knows that those creatures carry women on them sometimes, or if he even cares because they're Shan-Chan. Rand hums now also, so there's that. That's a loose Theron habit that he's picked up, and again, I'm not really sure if like this has something to do with men's vision and them combining, and that's why Rand is picking up some of his habits, or if Lucerin was ever there in the first place, I have no fucking idea. Anyway, while Rand is humming himself a nice little song, the battle starts, and <laughs> suddenly there's thunder and fire in the distance and lightning, because that's really the only kind of channeling anybody uses to fight, is thunder and lightning and erupting grounds and erupting people sometimes, you know, just to mix it up a little bit. And Rand says that only some of that was Sidian, so they're definitely being attacked by Damane, and the Ashaman are also channeling. 
I think whatever the bundle is that Narishima got for Rand has to be some sort of Angriol, because he mentions that he could take a hand or use a hand, which to me sounds like a weird way of saying that the Angriol would lend him a hand with channeling if he needed it to. And I put in my notes, I could be very wrong, but more on that later. (laughs) Sidene is still being weird where they are right now. Rand is apparently collecting all the Suldam and Damane, so whenever they're captured, he wants them brought to him. And I guess at one point, Rand forces one of the Suldam to take the collar off of her Damani, and the Damani freaks out and kills ten people before they can shield her again. Holy fuck. (laughs) That's so crazy. Anyway, back to the battle. Then Rand sends Flynn and Ashiva down to fight, and Flynn's like, I don't know, man, are you sure you're gonna- you're- we're gonna leave you up here by yourself, are you sure about that? And Rand's like, yeah, fuck off, I'm fine. And then, like, as soon as their gateways disappear, Rand is fucking bleeding on the ground. (laughs) Of fucking course he is. I knew as soon as they left, he was gonna get attacked, and it took literally seconds for him to get attacked. And the two noble women, whose names start with an A, are are with him and they're like, oh fuck, if he dies in our presence, we are so dead. Maybe we should just kill him. <laughs> and then Bashir gallops up to save the day. And more heals Rand and apparently Sidene healing is like really hot and fiery where we know Sidar's healing is icy and cool. So that's an interesting tidbit. And actually we saw that in the prologue, I think maybe where um, Ishmael tries to heal Luz Theron, and it's, like, hot and painful. That might be completely unrelated. But anyway, uh, Weirman, Weirman? I I don't know how I, I don't remember how I said his name before. Weirman? Weirman. Yeah, sure. It's still useless as fucking ever. He's, like, completely clean in the middle of a battle, and I think he's probably just hiding behind some trees or something and waiting for the battle to end, which doesn't surprise me at all. And then the chapter ends with Rand probably deciding to also take Ebu Dar from the Shan-Chan because fuck it, he's already here, right? <laughs> he spent all of that time and energy getting his army all the way over here, so why stop now? Okay, moving on to the next chapter, which is called A Time for Iron, and whenever I read the title of this chapter, I was like, oh fuck, it's about to go down, and it fucking does. So we start this chapter with the Shan-Chan point of view, and let me tell you, I'm really loving all these Sean Chan point of views. I'm getting so much insight into their culture, and like I mentioned earlier, it's nice to see both sides of the battle. You guys know how I like to see things from two different perspectives, and I'm getting a lot of that here, which is awesome. So now we're with Mirage, who I'm probably pronouncing the guy's name wrong, but whatever, and he's some another Sean Chan army bigwig, and we learn some Shantian country names in this chapter, which I will now try to pronounce badly for my own amusement. The first one is Alquam. Alquam? Don't know. Nikon? Nikon. Yep. Quo Wheel. <laughs> oh, that was my favorite. Quo Wheel. <laughs> I don't know if I'm saying that right. And Dalinchar, I think I actually did say right. <laughs> Anyway, Mr. Mirage believes that Rand's army is 90,000 strong, which every time we get a Shan Chan perspective, Rand's army has grown exponentially. (laughs) 
Anyway, Mirage is hanging out in his tent thinking about impending doom and things when Lady Suroth glides into his tent with a flourish. And if I had to summarize this book in three sentences, they would be, no one enters a tent without some sort of flourish. <laughs> the bold definitely fucks something up, not confirmed. And holy shit, Logan. But more on that, like, way later. <laughs> oh, man, this next part is so delicious. So... With Lady Suroth comes, you know, maids and slaves and shit, and one of them is fucking Leandrin. Oh my god. Oh my god. Oh my god. I can't believe it. I can't believe A, Leandrin is still alive. Actually, I can't believe that because she's pretty, um, I don't know. She has a lot of agency and she will definitely keep herself alive if she can. But I just, I can't believe where she is now. I, I guess I should have known that the Shanchan probably captured her over after the whole, like, Egwene and Nynaeve and Men disaster. But she isn't a Demone because Mugadian shielded the fuck out of her and tied the weave. And apparently um, it's going to take a lot more than just any old person trying to untie that weave. Like, a Forsaken tied it. There's a, it's a lot more complicated so who knows if Leandrin will ever be uh, a channeling woman again. Hopefully not. <laughs> really though, I was just thinking about this and it's a really scary time to be an Aes Sedai. Because if you think about it, for a while now they've probably just been like in the White Tower reading and smoothing their skirts a lot or whatever, just living it up. And now pain and sometimes death are waiting for them at every corner. They can be leashed by Shan Qian tortured and killed or both by the forsaken fuck with the wrong guy and get stilled or killed pick the wrong side and get stilled or killed probably golems are a thing the ashaman are a thing but again more on that later <laughs> and of course some totally bring it on themselves like leandrin but some don't and also fuck leandrin <laughs> Um, like, for example, I don't know. I don't know what's going on with Shirium right now, but I really don't think Shirium deserves whatever the fuck is happening to her in her tent. And, oh, I don't know. I'm sh uh, we'll talk more about another Aes Sedai later that I feel like the same way about. So, Lady Suroth comes in, and we learn something really cool about the Shan Chan. In their culture, you can be a slave and still move up in the world, which is so cool. And I feel like it's actually pretty good being a Shanchan, probably. They obviously prioritize keeping their people happy and social programs, and they are very neat and organized. I mean, it really sucks if you're a channeling woman, but if you're not, you know, it's probably a blast. <laughs> so Lady Suroth is telling Mirage about Rand's army and... Apparently, she knows about capital T traveling, which is interesting, and I'm wondering what other information that's been lost, like lost talents in history, that the Shan Chan and Lady Suroth know that we don't, and I'm really interested to learn the stuff that she knows that maybe we don't. That has to be the case, right? Because uh, the entire Shan Chan army, like, just left, and they probably had books and, uh, magical items and things like that that they took with them. So I'm interested to know more about what the Shanchan have in their library or their arcanum that they know about the world that we don't. She also knows that Rand only has 5,000 men, and I didn't even fucking know that, I don't think. I don't think they ever say 
how many men Rand leaves uh, Ilian with, but apparently it's 5,000. Oh, actually, it's probably less than that now because all kinds of people have probably died. But she also knows that they have 50 Ashaman, and apparently the Damane and Suldam in this camp are also sick from whatever's going on with the rest of them. But they're still going to fight anyway, and Surah tells Mirage to wipe every Ashaman from the face of the earth, so she's, they're going in to fuck stuff up. They are not holding back, and Rand and the Shantan are about to clash in the best way ever. Then we go back to Rand, and at this point he's been slaughtering Shantan for six days. There are 50,000 Shantan only 10 miles away from him, compared to the 5,000 that they probably don't have anymore because people keep dying. And those 50,000 Shanchan are just as ready to march on them as Rand is to march on the Shanchan. Rand has a plan, and it's all kind of military stuff, but let me just try to imagine it. So they have five columns of men, so I guess a thousand each, and each of the columns has at least a couple of Ashaman so that they can go in and fuck shit up. And they're going to attempt to fall on the Shan-Chan from every side at once. After I read, read this part, I was like, Rand, come on, man. Surely you know that's not going to fucking work, right? They are too smart for that. You're going up against the Shan-Chan, not some fucking piss-poor noble house from fucking, I don't know, Kyrian or something like that. These are the fucking Shan-Chan. They came over here to fight and not fuck around, and they are going to fight and not fuck around, and your little, oh, let's do five columns and split up and come on them everywhere at once is not going to fucking work on them, and it doesn't. <laughs> so Rand tells them a plan, they all get ready, Rand says go, and they go, and Rand is with a few of the Ashaman that we know in whatever column that he's in. Um, Deshiva is one of them, and Flynn is another, and I love Flynn so much. But anyway, they're moving along, and Deshiva rides up to Rand and wards them against eavesdropping. And at this point, I'm like, oh shit, something's gonna happen. <laughs> Deshiva starts to talk to Rand, and he's like, seriously, Rand, something is fucking up with Sidene here. It's weird. Stop pretending that you don't feel it, because you've been holding on to Sidene like every single minute since we got here. And he tells Rand that uh, Sidene pulses here and it's very difficult to control. And then Rand says, listen, I've been channeling longer than you. It's all in your head. You're just starting to feel the taint more. Um, fuck off and do what I say. This is not a conversation that we need to have. But Dashiva, after being very obviously dismissed, does not make any move to leave. And he's insistent about it. And I think he should be. He's like, look at my ward. Look at the way my ward is behaving right now and then deny the truth. And I'm going to read this part to you guys if I can find it. Okay, he says, so just, just uh, sorry, Rand looks at the ward and he says, the flows should have been as steady as the threads in tight woven canvas. They vibrated. The ward stood solid as it should be, but the individual threads of power shimmered with faint movement. More has said Sidene felt strange near Ebudar, and for a hundred miles around. They were closer than a hundred miles now. Ooh, interesting. Okay, I don't think that the uh, power is supposed to do any of that, so maybe, Rand, you should listen to Dashiva. Apparently, also, Rand mentions that this has nothing to do with the taint, because the taint feels steady here. It doesn't feel any different. It's literally just Sidene. 
So I don't know if that entirely pokes a hole into my tainted sidene thing or not. And it could mean that I'm completely wrong. But I don't know. That's the only theory I've got right now. <laughs> so um, that's the one I'm sticking to. But something is definitely up. I kind of entertain the idea that maybe the Shan Chan has some sort of Tarangriol or something like that that fucks with sidene or something. And they're using it in Ebudar. But I really don't know. Here's another interesting bit. Um, Deshiva also says that the word that he cast was a simple word, but it did not want to form, then it snapped together like pulling out of my hands. It just feels like Sidene has a little too much agency here, like it's kind of just doing whatever it wants to do, um, and they don't really have any power to control it beyond what kind of power it gives them to control it. Um, so for example, you know, when Deshiva tries to channel this word, he can, and he has a hard time, but it's almost like once the word's starting to form, Sidene just snaps itself into whatever it wants to do instead of listening to what Dashiva wants it to do. I don't know. Then we go back with Mirage um, and Lashan Chan, and we learn that Lady Seroth has ordered the Rockin not to fly during this battle for two reasons. A, the Ashamon keep fucking them up, and she probably doesn't want to lose anymore. And B, she doesn't want Rand to know that they're marching for him, even though he probably does. And maybe, you know, the rockin' flying gives him some sort of clue as to where they're coming from or something like that. On their way to the battle, again, we're with Mirage, we meet at Dur Sildam. Dur Sildam, I think is how you say it. The prefix Dur apparently means master, so she's like head fucker of the Suldom. She kind of reminds me of Aunt Lydia from The Handmaid's Tale. I don't know if you guys have ever seen that, but I think there are actually a lot of parallels between the handmaids and the Damani. You know, they're enslaved, they're used, they're treated as pets, um, they have no free will of their own. And also, Aunt Lydia is just a fucking fantastic villain. She's incredibly complex, and I fucking love Aunt Lydia. I also love Anne Dowd, who plays Aunt Lydia. She's such a good actress, and she also plays Patty Levin in The Leftovers, which if you haven't seen The Leftovers, you really need to watch it because it's fucking good. Anywho, back to Wheel of Time. So the Der Sodom, Der? 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 I don't know. The der, <laughs> I'm still having a hard time with this word. The Der Sodom is there. Her name is Lizane or something like that. She's there because the Suldam and the Damani are part of this army that is going towards Rand, which I fully expected to happen. I think Sur Lady Surath even says, yeah, you can have the Suldam and the Damani if you need to. And they absolutely do need to because if they were just going against the Ashaman by themselves without any channelers, they would get fucked. There is one really interesting moment in this chapter where... The Suldam and the Damani are ready to go, and the Suldam are riding on horses while the Damani walk, attached to their leashes, of course. And one of the Damani, or I'm sorry, one of the Suldam pats her Damani on the head while they're waiting, which is fucking disgusting, like she's a fucking pet or something. But there's another passage earlier in the book where Rand thinks about how when women are nervous, they often try to comfort other creatures, even if those creatures don't need comforting. And I feel like that is resonating a little bit here because really the Shan Chan see their Damani as animals to be used in whatever way that they want to. And that's so disgusting. Ugh, I hate it. The Shan Chan are also using Torm, 
which um, I think we've seen those before, but I don't know, they're horrible, attacky creatures. And apparently, trained Torm don't usually attack horses, so they're not attacking the horses, but sometimes they go into a killing frenzy. Holy fuck, that's terrifying. Um, I think the Torm are, like, really big, too, and just scary as fuck, so that we got that to deal with. And we learned that the Shanxian culture has something similar to Jeto, which I'm probably pronouncing wrong, but whatever. And it's called, God help me, Saitar. Saitar? Saitar. Something like that. Um, so it's basically like losing face. So the Aiel lose honor and the Shanxian lose face, essentially. Um, so I pulled up, well, I didn't pull it up. I just flipped to, <laughs> uh, I flipped to the glossary and this is what it says about Saitar. In the old tongue, straight eyes or level eyes. Among the Shanchan, it refers to honor or face, to the ability to meet someone's eyes. It is possible to be or have sitar, meaning that one has honor and face, and also to gain or lose sitar. And when you lose sitar, it's saimosiv. Mosiv? Saimosiv? I don't know. Uh, which means lowered eyes or downcast eyes. Among the Shanchan, to say that one has become Saimosiv, Mosiv, Mosiv, uh, means that one has lost face. So I thought that was interesting. I, that was, that's a little nugget of culture of the Shanchan that I would really like more of. Anyway, they learned from this Torm riding guy that Rand's army is about five miles away and the shit is about to go down. But before we switch back to Rand or to our side, this perspective ends with Raj watching the Suldam and the Damani disappear into the woods, and Lysane, who is the Aunt Lydia of the Shanchan, is watching them go and starts to sweat. Something is fucking up with this, man. I don't know what is going on with them, but I hope I find out soon. Then we switch perspective to Bertome. Bertome? I don't actually know. Bertome, something like that, who is Colavir's cousin, and I'm really trying pretty hard to keep all of the nobles' names straight because I'm hoping that one day there'll be a Watt trivia question and I'll totally get it right. <laughs> He's in Wiramon's column and he and his friend take a moment to talk about how Rand is totally unconcerned with them dying and that's the only reason that they're here and then he decides for whatever reason he's going to go talk to Weirmon who is meeting privately with Gedwin and he rides up and they both stare at him like they want to kill him and Weirman says some bullshit about Colavir, and I really hate Colavir, but Weirman is being such a huge dick saying stuff like that to her cousin about how Rand choked her to death or something like that. I didn't really hate this scene, but like I had mentioned in the last episode, I just don't care about the nobles or their petty bullshit. And thankfully, this scene was pretty short and it kind of leads to something cool. So, Bear Tome is about to start talking to Wiramon and uh, Gedwin when one of Bear Tome's men comes riding up and he's like, Holy fuck, you guys, there are 2,000 Terraboners coming towards us, and they have Damani, and then seconds later, the battle erupts, and there's fire, and earth explosions, and bad weather, and shit, and the last line of the scene is, the wind rose, and man, that one sentence adds so much to the scene, like, in my head, I imagine this battle erupting, and shit exploding, and the wind rising, and taking us with it to the next section, which is another really fantastic transition 
in this book. I think that this book is really filled with them. I can tell that Robert Jordan is trying some different things with transitions, especially during the battle scenes that are really paying off nicely, in my opinion. Then we're back with the Shan-Chan, and some Shan-Chan guy named Varric is fighting along or whatever, and while he's fighting, people are being literally ripped to shreds by either Torm or Ashaman, not sure which. He sees some, like, soldiers and shit standing in the woods, and he rides up to them, and they're standing there with a bunch of dead bodies that are burned to an absolute fucking crisp. And we find out that basically, a bunch of lightning came down and killed lots of them, and we'll discuss that in a moment. Then they decide that they need to disengage and fall back. And I can't tell if it's Mirage or Varric that uh, turns to one of the Suldam and says, we're probably going to de- be depending on the Suldam and the Demone further south. And the Suldam's face drains of all color. What the fuck is going on? <laughs> I don't actually think I find out what's going on in this book. So we'll have to see if I ever do find out what's going on. Like I said, I think the Suldam and the Demone's madness has something to do with Sidene and the trouble that ran and the Ashaman are having with it here. Then we switch perspectives to Bashir. This chapter switches perspectives all the time. (laughs) I feel like we get so many different perspectives in this one chapter, which is awesome. So Bashir is with uh, Roshade, or Rochade, I don't know how I want to pronounce that, Roshade, and basically in this section we get a glimpse of how the Ashaman are doing through this battle. And apparently, they're getting pretty hesitant about pushing forward to fight more Damane, and I think it has something to do with how powerful the Damane are. They've already killed two Ashaman soldiers in the battle. That doesn't even include the one that the Damane who was unleashed killed, I don't think. And yes, the Ashaman are also really strong, but I feel like the Damane have probably been channeling against armies their entire lives, They're literally battle mages. They have the experience going in and doing this that the Ashaman don't have. Not to mention the fact that most of them have only been channeling for, like, not even a year. Um, So it's definitely an uneven match. And so I understand why the Ashaman are concerned about continuing to fight them. But I think there's also a hint here of the Ashaman starting to experience the horror of being a killing machine... The way that we've seen Rand struggle with that exact same thing. You know, I'm I'm a murderer. I just kill everyone. I just use everyone. Those are things that we've seen Rand struggle with a lot. And it's only a matter of time before those same cracks start to show in the Ashaman. I think that coupled with so many of them showing signs of going mad right now might spell trouble if Rand doesn't get Sidene cleansed quickly slash doesn't get away from whatever the fuck is going with Cy- on with Sidene here. If he gets away from it, maybe it'll kind of resolve itself, but I don't know. Then we're back with Rand, and I have a little snippet to read, you guys. So Rand is thinking about, you know, the battle and stuff like that, and he's, he thinks, Dead men lay across the miles behind, dead enemies. Dead women, too, he knew, but he had stayed away from anywhere Soldam and Damani had died refusing to see their faces. Most thought it was hatred for those who killed so many of his followers, but we know that Rand doesn't like seeing women die or seeing dead women. 
Um, that's something that he feels really bad about. Um, so he's just kind of avoiding them. And I think that's a really good description of what's going on in this battle right now. There are so many dead people behind them and left in their wake because Rand is not fucking around. He really wants to push them back into the sea and get them off his land because he has other shit to worry about. This whole chapter has been absolutely fucking brutal. We have seen such wanton killing in this book, or I'm sorry, in this chapter so far, and really in this book too. There are a lot of pretty dark things in this book, but this particular chapter has been such a wild ride. The death and the killing are so gratuitous in this chapter, and I think it's a pretty powerful moment in the series because, I mean, Rand and the Sean Chan are just no-holds-barred batting heads right now, and we'll see at the end what happens with that, but actually we'll see right now what happens with that. Let's just continue. <laughs> so at this point, the male channelers are starting to have an even harder time controlling Sidene. At one point, Adley apparently lets the power slip from his grasp and kills a few men with bursts of fire that he couldn't control. Holy fuck. And also, Rand is still, like, not listening to their concerns about it. Then Bashir comes up, and he's like, listen, you guys, we should stop fighting now, because my men are dying, your men are dying, lots of men are dying for no, absolutely no fucking reason at all. Like, this is just pointless, let's go. And then Rand still refuses to listen, because there are still 10 to 15,000 Shanchan out in the woods, and he is absolutely fucking determined to kill all of them before this battle is over. So Rand's like, fuck them, I want to crush them, and I'm going to drive them into the sea. Oh, here we go. <laughs> then he unwraps the bundle that Narishma got for him from wherever he went, and it's fucking Kalendor. Oh my god. Oh my god. Rand has fucking Kalendor. Rand should not have Kalendor. <laughs> because what he does next with Kalendor is really horrible and bad. And I know that I'm laughing, but like seriously, it's really horrible and bad. So as he touches Kalendor, that black and spidery web thing happens again across the void, which is interesting. And it's probably a bad sign that like we as a reader are like waving every red flag and we're like, don't Rand, don't do it. Don't do it. But he does it. <laughs> um, but before we move on, just taking a moment to think about this black spidery stuff that's happening across the void. I think the fact that it's black is the most interesting thing about it. Because we know that the Forsaken's ties to the Dark One's power are black. We saw um, Rand cut or sever Asmodian's black tie to the Dark One. So I'm wondering if because Black is involved, if the Dark One is involved with this um, spideriness that's happening across the void. And I feel like this could also be part of the dizzy spells or like the feeling that Rand has that somebody's like touching his mind. I feel like those are all connected some way, but I'm really not sure how or if, if it actually is or not. But I hope that all of this buildup pays off soon because I'm dying to know what the fuck's happening. But anyway, back to Rand. <laughs> then Rand channels Sidene through Kalendor and he fills the sword with it and Rand is fucking crazy strong and he feels like he can fuck up anything. And then he says, I am the storm, which is fucking crazy. Ah! And then he channels this huge fucking storm 
and hundreds of lightning bolts and fire and shit. Well, I think it's just lightning. And then when the lightning strikes the ground, there's fire. But Rand is just AOing the fuck out of this place. He has lightning bolts going everywhere. And then something hits him really hard from behind and he gets even angrier and then he starts casting thousands and thousands of lightning bolts. And I'm just like, Rand, oh my God, what are you doing? (laughs) And then he starts getting hit by someone again and he discovers that Bashir is the one attacking him. And Bashir's like, fucking stop, man, you're killing us. You're killing people in our army too. And Rand turns around and indeed his lightning is hitting everyone and everything regardless of whose side they're on. And Rand discovers very quickly after that that Adley is one of the people that was killed by his fucking lightning. So Rand is going to have that to deal with. Uh, He has that death now on his list too, which is going to fuck him up quite a bit probably. And once he realizes what's happened, Rand feels so defeated. He is sitting on the ground with the crown of swords in his hand and the swords on the ground and he thinks that he's lost this battle and it's just a huge defeating moment for Rand. And it was an incredible moment. Like, fucking wow, 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 wow. So throughout this entire book, we've heard several mentions of Rand being hard and not strong. Of him being iron and iron shatters. And the name of this book is, uh, or I'm sorry, (laughs) not the name of the book. (laughs) The name of the chapter is A Time for Iron. And I think that refers to not just the, you know, I don't know, fighting and swords and shit like that being iron, but also Rand being iron and shattering. And he absolutely shatters here when he turns around and realizes what he's done. Because he was so focused and intent on breaking the Shanchan and annihilating them utterly, he actually did do that. But at what cost? He's killed one of the youngest Ashaman that he actually had, I think, I don't, I don't want to say feelings for, but you know, I think he cared about him because he was so young and Rand felt bad about, you know, putting him through Ashamon training and having him channel knowing that he was going to go mad and stuff like that but does this remind you guys of anything else too like another scene maybe the prologue yeah Rand didn't realize he was killing everyone around him and then he comes to and looks around him and everyone's dead and he's upset which is exactly what fucking happened with Louis Theron Louis Theron had a little bit of help remembering as you guys know but like at the same time I see very distinct parallels between those two scenes So Rand thinks that he's lost this battle, but we get a short perspective from a Shanchan at the end of this chapter, and they're going to retreat because they've suffered a horrible defeat. So many people have died because of Rand's lightning on both sides. Mirage is dead. Lots of Shanchan are crying, and I think that might be because they lost honor in their defeat, and now they have to go and tell the Empress that they've lost. Or something like that. I think it's probably also um, that they've lost a lot of the people that were close to them, maybe. Uh, but I can't really tell how the Shanchan feel about people dying in battle. Like, the Aiel know that dying in battle is a part of it. They find it to bring honor to them. Um, so whenever somebody else dies in battle, it's not a sad thing for them. It's that those people have achieved the ultimate form of honor, which is dying in battle. But I'm not sure how the Shanchan feel about that, so I'm not really sure why they're crying. But what a fucking incredible scene. That chapter blew me the fuck away. It was so, so good. Okay, then we get a 
pretty big change of pace from the last chapter. So now we're with Elida, and Elida is meeting with the Hall. This is a new chapter, by the way. Uh, Elida is meeting with the Hall, and they're talking about just kind of some of the things that are going on in the world and the rumors that they've been hearing. And they straight up don't believe that the Adam are real uh, because no Terangriel has ever been found that can control a woman's channeling. So they're just like, oh, that's ridiculous. We ha- we don't know anything about that. Whatever. And, oh, honey. <laughs> um, they are so fucking oblivious to the real world. Even Egwene and Swan not believing that sisters would bow to Rand is a problem. It's happening. Come to terms with it. You guys need to start realizing that different, new, completely out of the norm shit is going to keep happening now that the Dragon Reborn is back and he's doing his shit. Shivan is a brown sister and she is the only one giving any of these claims real weight. She's like, oh, sure. We've never seen a Tarangriel like that, but before we could, o- we thought we could only stop a woman from channeling by shielding her, and now we know that herbs can do the same thing. So why would it be ridiculous for a leash to be a part of stopping or controlling a woman's channeling? That's entirely possible. And then she says, next thing we'll know, somebody will figure out how to make Tarangriel again, which is old news and already happening because we know that Elaine knows how to make Tarangriel. She's done it a couple times. Maybe she's not great at it yet, but she definitely knows what she's doing. Also, Elida does know that the Ashaman can travel. I don't know if she knows that female channelers can travel yet, um, and I don't know if she knows that Egwene can travel, but I'm sure that will still be a bit of a shock to her when in the next book, Elaine, or I'm sorry, Egwene is suddenly there. <laughs> We also learn that some shit has been happening in the White Tower. Elida is issuing all of these decrees. She is serving super harsh uh, penances to anyone who gives her a reason to, and they are not pleasant. And you can see that the sitters are all scared of these penances. And with names like Mortification of Spirit and Mortification of Flesh, I wouldn't want to be subject to those penances either. Then Alvierin comes in and Elida's shit-eating grin falls right off of her face because apparently Alvierin is the one who's really calling the shots around here. And we'll talk about that more in just a second. Alvierin has been gone for two weeks and during that time, Elida has been using her vacation to pretend to be in charge when she's really not. Felina, who is the white sitter, flinches when she sees Alvierin come in, which was 100% confirmation that she's back Aja. Absolutely, because there's no way she would react that way to the keeper if there wasn't something more to their relationship. So I'm gonna go ahead and guess that Felina is Black Aja. Elida suspects that Alvierin is Black Aja, and we know that because she says it directly in this book. But we also kind of knew that since Elida met with Cian to find Black Aja, and I think that she was hoping that Cian would find out Alvierin and then it wouldn't be her finding it out or something like that. Anyway, Alvierin takes a moment to look through all of Elida's decrees, which Elida made hoping that Alvierin was dead, and she picks out the things that can stay, and she does away with whatever she doesn't think will work, and then she just slaps the fuck out of Elida just right across the face. Probably whole hand, palm open, five finger slap. Apparently, Elida is letting Alvierin push her around so much because she knows that Elida tried to have Rand kidnapped, and if the Hall found out about that, they would be livid. 
And she also knows that there are 50 sisters headed for the Black Tower, and Elida doesn't want that to be found out either, which is interesting because, I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I just feel like Elida is doing, like, the same shit that Swan was, where she's doing all of these things in secret, but Swan was actually trying to help. Here, Elida mentions that her foretelling signaled a victory at the Black Tower, and that's the whole reason why she sent sisters out there anyway. (laughs) But more on that later, because that's definitely not going to happen. But we also find out that apparently Alviren has forced uh, Elida to sign a number of decrees, one increasing the Tower Guard, and Elida thinks this is pointless because the rebels will be stomped out way before the Guard is needed, but this leads me to believe that Alviren understands the reality of their situation. She's probably getting the info from Halima. She probably knows that in however much time, Egwene's going to show up with an entire fucking army through a gateway. And maybe she's trying to prepare the tower for that without trying to actually let Elida know what's going on. Another decree was to make the Ajahs reveal who headed them. Uh, apparently this one failed, but that's of no consequence because we'll talk about it in a second, but I'm not really sure what the point of this is or why it's such a secret. Like, I don't understand why it's a secret as to who actually heads the Ajahs. You would think that everybody would know that and it would just be common knowledge, but apparently not. Um, But I don't really understand what Alviren... Oh, yes, I do. Okay, yes, I do understand now, Uh, but more on that in a second. And another decree was uh, giving each Aja the final authority over any sister in its quarter, no matter what Aja she's actually a part of. And I'm not really 100% sure about this because I don't understand why a sister would be in any quarter but her own. I mentioned this on Discord and we talked about maybe it being pillow friends, uh, maybe it just being part of creating more chaos and more disorganization so that the Black Aja can kind of have more power. Um, It's definitely a power move. I'm just really still not sure why any sister would be in another quarter other than theirs, unless they just, I don't know, like the company of one Aja more than the other? Who fucking knows? Then she makes Elida sign a new decree, and I will read it for you post-haste. Let me find, there we go. There's the page right there. It says, The world now knows that Randall Thor is the Dragon Reborn. The world knows that he is a man who can touch the One Power. Such men have lain within the authority of the White Tower since time immemorial. The Dragon Reborn is granted the protection of the Tower, but whoever, whosoever attempts to approach him, save through the White Tower, lies attainted of treason against the Light, and anathema is pronounced against them now and forever. The world may rest easily knowing that the White Tower will safely guide the Dragon Reborn to the last battle and the inevitable triumph. Okay. So this is the problem (laughs) with this one. Elida realizes that if she signs this decree saying that no sister can approach Rand except with through the White Tower, then it will be impossible for her to deny that she was behind his kidnapping. And he's definitely going to believe that any time a sister from the White Tower, or really any sister at all probably, comes into contact with him, that it's been the Tower's will. And so far, it absolutely fucking has been. The kidnapping was definitely Elida's idea, and 
I mean, I don't really give a shit if Rand finds out and doesn't believe her. I'm sure he already knows, but she fucking deserves whatever is coming to her. And she signs it because she has to obey Alviren or her plots will be exposed and she'll be deposed. Really, Alviren has the best blackmail on Elida fucking ever right now. And there's no way that Elida's ever going to be able to get out from under this. Because if she does, she's absolutely going to be deposed and probably stilled for the shit that she's done. Then Alvierin leaves and she sends in Sylvania, Sylvania, I'm not sure, to administer a private penance of the flesh. So she basically beats the fuck out of Elida and afterwards Elida cries into her pillows because she's in pain and nothing's going her way. But fuck man, you couldn't pay me to be the Amberlin seat. No fucking way. Especially after hearing Swan talk so heavily about how the Amberlins have been killed and stilled and exiled and all kinds of crazy shit has happened to them. Fuck that. I hope none of that happens to Egwene, but really history is not on her side. Then we follow Alvirin to her meeting with Masana. And Masana is angry that she had Elida beaten, but I guess she's not really that angry because she doesn't do anything about it. But we find out that Elida's new decree was Masana's idea, probably like the rest of them were. And we learn that the Aja heads have been meeting secretly and frequently, and I am fucking intrigued by this because I want to know what the fuck they're meeting about. So I guess Alvirin does know who the heads of the Ajas are, even though the decree failed because there are black sisters in every Aja, they tell Alvirin everything that happens within their Ajas, but they don't know anything about the red Aja because Galena was the only black sister in the red and she's not around anymore. Um, which is interesting because Masana thinks that Galena is dead, but we know that she's not. Alvierin makes a mental note that uh, Masana does not know some of this information and therefore does not know everything, which she files away for later. Which brings me to my next point. Alvierin is such a fucking fantastic villain. She is so smart and so plotty and I, I don't know, just she's just so good at being evil. <laughs> and I don't know if the Forsaken are recruiting, what with them losing quite a few recently, but I think she's the best candidate. She has lots of experience. She has lots of ambition. She has a nice stacked resume. She's been in the Black Aja forever. So I feel like her natural progression is to be a Forsaken next. But I don't know if any more Forsaken are going to happen. That would be fucking cool, though, if there were suddenly more Forsaken being recruited or whatever since Rand is killing them all. Okay, now let's move on to the next chapter, which is called The Extra Bit. And let me tell you, this chapter is a fucking wild ride. Oh my god. I have a live reaction for this and everything. So we're with Sian, who is on a mission, and she's charging her way for, through the tower, and she's trying to find someone. And apparently there's been a lot of tension in the White Tower lately, and that's something that we kind of got glimpses of while we were with Elida and the sitters, but apparently... Beyond the heads of the Aja who are meeting in secret, there are definitely tensions between the actual members of the Aja. Um, they're looking at each other funny and stuff like that. Sian finally finds who she was going after, and that's Zara Dakin. Zara Dakin. I don't know if I'm saying Dakin right, but whatever. And we know that Sian's uh, mission right now is to find Black Aja, so I'm assuming that Zara is suspect. 
Zara's dress is described as being heavily embroidered and a lot more showy than what a white sister would typically wear. So at first I was tossing around the idea that maybe this is Masana. And I'm still keeping that theory close by because I don't, I mean, I have no evidence either way, but I don't know how much weight it holds after we find out that Zara is probably one of the women Egwene sent to influence the Tower Isodai. So she's definitely been spreading the Loghain and uh, Red Aja rumors and probably contributing to a lot of the strife between the Ajas. And I'm sure the other women from Saladar are also contributing to that same strife. It's stormy outside right now, so you guys may hear a bit of thunder, but I'm hoping to the gods that I don't lose power in the middle of fucking recording. <laughs> anyway, Sian finds Zara. She tells Zara that she needs her help with something or something like that. And then they go down into the depths of the tower, and she takes Zara into this empty room, and Pavara, her friend in this uh, mission to find the Black Tower, or the Black Aja, is waiting there, and apparently Pavara's entire family was killed by dark friends, so she's like really fucking gunning for some dark friends. And Zara walks in on this, and it's just a shakedown, like they're there to question her about whether or not she's Black Aja. They ask her straight up, if she's a dark friend, and she says no, and then they pull out the fucking oath rod, and they ask Sarah to retake her oath against lying because the Black Aja can break them somehow, and then say, okay, now tell us that you're a dark friend, that you're not a dark friend, now that you've resworn your oath and we know that you have it again, or that you definitely have it. They also want her to swear to do anything they say, and I don't know what the fuck it is about the Aes Sedai, but they're always trying to make each other do whatever they say. <laughs> they know that the Black Aja are able to break their oaths, so apparently they try to reverse engineer that process, and apparently it's not much different than taking the oaths, but it is extremely painful. And then Zara is just kind of scandalized by the fact that they broke their oaths, and then she says something that I thought, well, let me just read you this little passage. So, uh, she says, you freed yourself from one of the oaths. Zara sounded startled, disgusting, uneasy all at the same time. Perfectly reasonable responses. Okay, if, okay, <laughs> if something wasn't up here, then Robert Jordan wouldn't feel the need to put those sentence perfectly reasonable responses after all of her responses. And this is another reason why I'm kind of leaning towards either Zara is Masana or something else is going on with her because that just is such a weird... I, I, there's no way Robert Jordan would put that in there if it doesn't mean something. So I'm still kind of leaning towards this is Masana because of her dress and because of that weird thing that she just said, or not that she just said, but the weird thing from the narration. But the I'm from Saladar story is also believable because she had some plant matter on her saddle from that area. But that doesn't mean Masana couldn't have, like, traveled down to Saladar, grabbed a horse, and traveled back up so her story would be believable. But then why would she, I don't know, why would she go back down there to pick up matter that would make her story not seem right because she told them that she came from the north. I don't know. I think I'm overthinking this, so I'm just going to move on. <laughs> also, well, I said I was going to move on. One more point about this. Zara, who might be a Masana, does take the oath again, and she says that she's not Black Aja, but that doesn't really put a, a too big of a hole in my theory that this could be Masana because... 
Masana is not Black Aja. She's not an Aes Sedai. So she could definitely lie about that. And then she could just go unoath herself however they do it later. But again, I'm not sure. And this could be entirely wrong. <laughs> but I just feel like Alviren noted the embroidery on her dress. And now we're seeing more embroidery on a dress and kind of a woman who is showing more skin than a white normally would. Um, which kind of makes me feel like maybe she's masquerading as a white when she's not actually, but I don't fucking know. So once Sian and Pavara discover that she's from Saladar, Pavara tells her to admit that the story about the Reds and Loghain is a lie, and Zara starts choking because she she's just sworn not to lie, and Pavara is asking her to say something that she believes is a lie, so she starts choking and she's unable to to lie. She's unable to say, oh yes, that's a lie, because she really genuinely believes that it's true. And then Sian thinks, we never really considered that conflicting oaths could be behind the Black Asha being able to remove their oaths. Like, if they replaced their oath with a conflicting one, then maybe they could still lie. Um, that could be right. I'm also kind of entertaining the idea that maybe you have to use the same oath that you uh, said the oaths or the oath rod that you said the oaths on in order to break them, and that maybe if they're not around the oath rod that they use to swear the oaths because it's in the White Tower and they're somewhere else, maybe then they can use conflicting oaths to override their oaths. I don't know. I'm entertaining all of those equally because I actually have no idea. Then we learn that ten Saladar sisters are at the tower. We learn their names, and then three other sisters burst into the room, Telene, Eucharie, and Docene, I think is how you say their names. And then eventually two of those three sisters retake their oath and swear they're not Black Aja, but Telene refuses to do so, which means she's totally Black Aja. Then we switch perspectives again, and this is where the fun starts. <laughs> we switch perspectives to Tovane, I think is how you say her name, who is a sister of the Red Aja who is on her way to the Black Tower. And we learn that she is a former Red Sister who was, I'm sorry, Red Sitter, <laughs> who was punished and exiled for doing something really bad that she thought was necessary, I think during the Iowa War or something like that. So anyway, she's riding along and suddenly there's a man in a black coat and her and the other four sisters or something like that that she's with find that they are all shielded and that suddenly there are 15 Ashamon there. And the guardsmen start attacking, and Tovane fucking runs, thinking that if she gets away from them, the Ashaman will release their shield because they have line of sight issues or something like that. So she's fucking hucking and bucking to get away, and suddenly some unseen force knocks her off her horse. Then the Ashaman says, he like grabs her and says, Sorry, sister, this is how we learn to do it. And then he kisses her, and she has some sort of intense orgasmic experience. And then he asks her name, and she answers, and then can't figure out why she answers after he kisses her. And then we find out that this is fucking Loghain. Oh my god. Okay, so I recorded my act reaction to this. Let's just, I'm going to put it here and just let you guys listen to it. Hello everyone, this is currently reading Leslie. Um, I just finished chapter 26, and I just wanted to come on and fucking react to it. So, first of all, all of my dreams are coming true because fucking Loghain is part of the Black Tower. Oh, actually, I think he has a rank too. Hold on, let me look. Oh my god, dude. 
Loghain is a full Ashaman. Oh my god, is this really happening? I can't fucking believe it. Okay, Loghain is back. He is a full fucking blown Ashaman. And then, okay, so let me just start from the beginning. <laughs> Actually, I've probably already summarized this for you guys. Future me has. So anyway, so Tovain is the one that Loghain, the Aes Sedai that Loghain captures. And he fucking kisses her or something like that. And she has this like weird orgasmic sexual experience. And then um, he tells her later what happened and she's just distraught. So basically my theory here is that Loghain just fucking bonded to her without her consent. So we know and we've been reminded several times recently that the Aes Sedai and their warders kind of share the same feelings and emotions and apparently that extends to sexual pleasure. And I don't know if, like, she was feeling it because he was feeling it because that would be really fucking weird. But it doesn't matter. What matters is that Loghain... Oh my god. Okay, so... Oh, that's... Okay, so the other Ashaman or whatever, you know, channeling man. <laughs> I don't know his rank. He comes up and says, did you take another one? The Mahale is going to be upset about that. So he must have more than one Aes Sedai bonded to him. Oh my god, I'm losing my fucking mind. I can't believe this. Okay, I think that's all I have to say. Future Leslie will talk about this in more detail if she wants to, but I I cannot believe this. I have to take a break from reading The Wheel of Time today because holy fuck, holy fuck, so much just happened in like two pages. I can't believe Loghain is at the Black Tower. I'm so fucking happy that I was right because that's exactly what I wanted to see. I can't fucking believe it. I cannot believe that he kissed an Aes Sedai and probably bonded him, her, to him? I guess it goes that way. Holy fuck. Oh my god. Hold on, before I leave, one more thing. So the reason, one of the biggest reasons why I think that this was a bonding um, is because all of a sudden, Tovain has absolutely no interest in like running away from Loghain or getting away from him or disobeying him or anything like that. Also, it makes complete sense that Taim would be upset with them about bonding Aes Sedai because then surely the Aes Sedai will know where they are at all times and that means that they'll probably be able to find the Black Tower even though, I mean, she's not going to want to, but I can totally see why Taim would not want that to happen. Also, they're probably going to be hanging around, and I'm sure he doesn't like that either. Even though, if they're all like Tovain, they'll be obedient and do whatever, god, that makes me sick, do whatever the Ashamans say, right? Like, it has to work the same way. Anyway, I still can't fucking believe it. I'm still in absolute fucking shock about what I just read. Holy fuck. <laughs> Okay, bye. <laughs> oh my god. And the last sentence of this is, she would make Elida pay for this if Loghain ever let her. Oh my god. <laughs> oh my god. I can't believe that that happened. I can't believe I was right, and I'm just so excited that Loghain is back in my life. Holy fuck. Yay. Okay, let's move on to the next chapter. We're almost done. This episode is going to be so fucking long. So now we're with men. And first of all, I'd like to say that Min has really grown on me in this book, and the last one too. She was really, 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 really fucking annoying in Lord of Chaos. Let's just be real. She was so fucking annoying. 
But in Crown of Swords, she was really a support role for Rand, and he really needed that. And now she's more of a support role again in this book, and I'm really enjoying having her around to kind of keep Rand grounded and just be someone who loves him and cares about him, where everybody else wants him to die and are always plotting against him and stuff like that. So Min is reading a book that she got from Herod Fell, which may he rest in peace, and Rand comes home, and they do this whole, like, you didn't call me to tell me you'd be late. And then Rand's like, yeah, I did. I sent you two notes. <laughs> and then Dobrand comes in and talks about some drama with the nobles that I didn't really care about. And then Marana and Rafella come in to tell Rand the details of the bargain they've managed to strike with the Sea Folk. And Dobrain is still here. So in the room, we have Dobrain, Rand, Min, Marana, and Rafella. I almost called her Raffaella. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> so here's the bargain, basically. In exchange for all of the ships he needs whenever he needs them, Rand will agree to not change any of their laws like he does in literally every other place he's conquered. He has to give the sea folk a square mile of land in each city on navigable water that he controls now or comes to control. That's a lot. <laughs> Within their square mile, the Seafolk laws will hold more weight than all other laws, and the leaders of the ports have to agree with this as well. And after hearing this, Debrain is beside himself angry. Apparently, Rand also has to keep a Seafolk ambassador chosen by them with him at all times, which Rand is absolutely furious about. And lastly, Rand has to agree to go promptly to any summons from the Mistress of Ships, but the good news is that this will only happen two times in a three-year period. So he only has to be at their beck and call like twice every three years. So Rand is absolutely fucking not on board with any of this. He is furious. Well, he's fine with giving other people's land away, but he's definitely not fine having a Seafolk ambassador with him at all times. And he tries to be really shitty to Marana and Rafella. And Marana is like, fuck you, Rand. You could have had them all kneeling and bending over, but you left to let us deal with the bargain and went off to do something else, which is absolutely fucking true. They apparently, Marana and Rafello were shielded th during this whole bargain process, and they couldn't use the power to help with their negotiations. They were being threatened. And by the way, the sea folk have officially acknowledged you as the Coromor, so why don't you give us a little bit more fucking appreciation, you dick? <laughs> and after this verbal lashing, Rand agrees that they done good, and then he summons Catswain so he could talk to her, and Debrain leaves, and now it's just random in again, and three maidens come in and just beat the absolute fucking shit out of Rand, which he absolutely fucking deserves and needed. One of them says that they won the right to be the ones to kick his ass, but all of the maidens wanted to kick his ass because he went off to fight and he left them there and dishonored them. And apparently this is the kind of treatment they give to first brothers who dishonor honor them so much is they beat the shit out of them. So that was kind of cute and nice. <laughs> I think Rhea needs the humbling that he got from Marana and these three maidens right at this time because he's got too much of a head on his shoulders right now. Then Min and Rand try to cuddle again, but Daigian comes in and interrupts, and she's like, sorry, Cadswain 
wants to come, but she can't because she's working on her needlework. And she said that maybe, you know, at some point she'll have enough time to come see you. So obviously that pisses Randolph quite a bit. But right after that, he mentioned something about well, let me just read it to you. He says, Light, he had told Narishma everything about the traps he had woven in the stone when he sent the man to fetch Kalendor. The man was imagining things burned him, but it had been a mad risk to take. This is interesting because it makes me feel maybe Narishma got hurt by something that Rand forgot to tell him about. But honestly, it sounds a little bit more like some forsaken shit someone adding more traps so that Rand gets caught in them when he goes back. But I'm very sad that Narishma could have gotten hurt by any of those um, doing something for Rand. Then he has Narishma, oh, I'm sorry, Dashiva make them a gateway to Cadswain's room. And Dashiva also does this like weird menacing humming shit with the power when they get there. And so Rand gets to Cadswain's room, kicks everybody else out, and then he does this, like, super showy and unnecessary shit where the power, where he, like, heats up some tea, then pours it into cups, but then it's too hot, so he fucking opens the window and sends the teacups out into the snow and brings it back in, and uh, I guess it's a proper temperature after that, but he also just leaves the windows open, so just snowing in the Cadswain's room. God, he's so stupid. <laughs> and then he hates his tea because he made it too strong. After all that, he doesn't even fucking like his tea. <laughs> Eventually, they get to the point of this meeting and Rand asks Cad Swain to be his advisor because he's a king. And I was scandalized because I don't fucking understand this at all. But I guess it's because of men's viewing that he needs to have her around so that he can succeed or something like that. In return, Cad Swain makes... Uh, Rand promised to be civil to her and her friends and her guests. And then she says, I hope you haven't tried to use Kalendor. You managed to escape once, but not twice. What? Okay, hold on. Let's get some, some evidence from the text here. Let me read this to you guys. Okay, this is what Catswain says. She says, what? She did not even look up. Oh, very few even in the tower knew what Kalendor was before you drew it. But there are surprising things hidden in the musty corners of the tower library. I went rummaging some years ago when I first had the suspicion that you might be suckling at your mother's breast, just before I decided to go back into retirement. Ooh, interesting. Okay, so first of all, apparently Catswain hasn't just been chasing false dragons because they're channeling men. It seems to me like she's been looking for the Dragon Reborn, and every time somebody claims that they're the Dragon Reborn, she goes to investigate. So she's obviously well-read on this um, Dragon Reborn stuff, and she was doing research around the time that Rand was born, so I believe her. I believe that, I don't know, she I, she just knows what she's talking about. I have a feeling that Cad Swain's mission, like I mentioned earlier, is really to help the Dragon Reborn and not to just gentle channeling men and go to torture him, even though she kind of does torture him a little bit with uh, the things that she says and stuff like that. Then she says, and she's talking about Kalendor, it is flawed, lacking the buffer that makes other saw Ingrial safe to use, and it apparently magnifies the taint, inducing wildness of the mind, so long as a man is using it anyway. The only safe way for you to use is a sword that is not a sword. The only way to use it without the risk of killing yourself or trying to do the light alone knows what insanity is linked with two women and then one of them guiding the flows. 
So I'm not sure if I totally believe her here or not. I'm tempted to, but at the same time, I feel like this is a way for her to be like, oh, you need a channeling woman with you when you use this. Why, what about me? Why not me? I think you need to have a sister with you at all times. I'm sure that this is actually the case because, well, first of all, Cat Swain can't tell a lie. I, I mean, I guess she can't. I don't know. But at the same time, I feel like she, like I said, has done a lot of research. I think that she actually wants Rand to succeed in whatever way or shape or form that takes. But the most interesting part of this chapter has yet to come. Because Rand walks away, it says, Rand barely heard her. He had hoped to use Kalendor again, hoped it would be strong enough. Now only one chance remained, and it terrified him. He seemed to hear another woman's voice, a dead woman's voice. You could challenge the creator. What? Is this real? First of all, that has to be Moraine, right? Well, I mean, there's plenty of dead women he could choose from, I guess. But I feel like this is this reeks of knowledge that only Moraine could have. But I don't know if this is real or not, or is this some sort of metaphor? Because if the creator is something or someone they can actually interact with, that would be fucking wild, and I hope I get to see it, because holy fuck, that's awesome. Okay, let's move on. So, the next chapter is called Crimson Thorn, and the name of this chapter is actually quite chilling if you've read this chapter. So, we're with Elaine, which I'm coming to dread just a bit because... Last time we were with Elaine, it was really boring, <laughs> but this one is pretty good. So the Ken and the Aes Sedai have another spat about whether the Aes Sedai can reclaim a member of the Ken who has been living as a Ken and put them back in novice white. And I fucking agree with the Ken because if I was one of them and I was old as fuck and I've been living my life and some Aes Sedai tried to take me back and put me in novice white, there would be a fucking brawl. I would not be on board with that at fucking all. Anyway, Lan calls for Elaine and Nynaeve and Brigitte and I think Avienda is there to come and check something out. And what they find is horrifying. So Rand is sitting or standing in front of the tent that Adelius, I think her name, that's how you, Adelius, 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 let's go with that. That Adelius had taken Isban to the night before and when they get inside of it, Adelias is fucking dead on the floor with her throat cut. And Ispen is on the cot with a wooden stake through her chest. So I guess they had both been poisoned with this crimson thorn, which kills you. I mean, a little bit will kill your pain and a lot of it will kill you. <laughs> and I guess um, whoever poisoned them used that as an opportunity to go in and kill them even more or something like that. But it takes a really long time to kill you, so they were just in pain while they were dying. I don't know. It's horrifying. This whole scene is horrifying. They determined that the killer of the two women has to be someone among them because Adelius wouldn't have accepted a drink from someone that she didn't know. And, I mean, it could have been Halima, that makes sense, right? Because she's uh, forsaken, doing all kinds of bad shit, killing people in, and maybe that's how she killed the, uh, egg, oh no, oh wait, Halima's not here, what am I talking about? Okay, so, mystery not solved, <laughs> uh, who knows who actually killed them, but it's just a really sad scene, and a really horrifying scene, and I don't know. God, that was just, this book is quite a bit darker than the last one, even though, well, yeah, no, it's quite a bit darker than the last one, I think. Anyway, so Elaine goes to Camlin and she gets to the palace and she 
tells everyone that she's back and she hangs, hangs out by the throne for a little bit and then she talks to Dylan and then she mentions that she wants to bond Rand as her warder, which I don't think is going to work because someone got there first. Then we get another perspective in this chapter and our new perspective is David Hanlon, I guess that's how you say it, um, and he goes to meet some lady Cheyenne or something who is absolutely 100% Simarog. And I know this because she's got this like horrible torture ta table in her house and she has two people in it. One of them is Jacob, the dark friend, and he's apparently been a disappointment. And the other one is Falion, one of the Black Thirteen, and she kills Jacob by suffocating with him with Brandy. And then he start, she starts to kill Falion in the same manner, but it doesn't say whether she stopped or succeeded or anything like that. And then she asked David if he'd like to put his hands on a queen, which is gross, but she probably means Elaine, which is not great. Then we're back with Rand, and we start this chapter, and Rand is sulking because Elaine is back in the throne, and she took down his banners, and Men's like, shut up, stop being such a baby about it, like, it's not a big deal. And Soralia comes in with Rand's sworn Aes Sedai, who are all in black robes, and they tell him why they actually want to serve him and swear oaths, and now they can be apprentices with the wise ones. So I feel like the prisoner Aes Sedai are kind of moving up in station, and who knows what will happen to them next. But, you know, they're not really prisoners anymore, I guess. Then Rand Min and Fedwin Moore start to leave his room to go uh, meet with Cat Swain again, I think. And then as soon as they get out of it, the room just fucking explodes behind them. And Rand has more take men into the cellars so will show be safe. And then he runs to figure out what the fuck is going on. And at one point, he channels again and he sees that weird blurry face that he's been seeing in his dreams sometimes. And something is really fucky with that, but I'm not sure what yet. And apparently all of the servants, I mean, he's running through the castle. He keeps hearing all these servants say that Rand's gone mad and he's killing everyone. And then he does something interesting. He wraps himself in folded light, which I've never seen him do before. But apparently it's like a way for him to sneak about or something like that. So he's sneaking about and he discovers that Dashiva, Gedwin, and Rochade, or Rochade, are together and they're responsible for the attacks, which is fucking crazy because I never really, I mean, I kind of expected some of the Ashaman to eventually betray Rand, but I didn't think Dashiva was going to be a part of it. But then Dashiva notices Rand and he attacks him and Rand fends off the attack with some sort of like super strong barrier, which was kind of crazy. And then he starts hunting them and he's, he's in the void and he's full of Sidene and it says that the taint was, like, leaking into his soul. Oh, God, gross, A, and B, how horrifying. And he never finds the three Ashaman. They just kind of disappear. So now they're fucking running around loose somewhere. Then the perspective changes again, and we're with Rand men and men in the basement. And somewhere in the chaos, Moore has gone mad and has regressed to being, like, a toddler or something. And then Taim shows and he's like, shows up and he's like, hey, you're alive. I'm here to report some pretty fucking high-ranking deserters. Of which, Gedwin, Rochade, Torval, and Kissman, who I don't actually know who that is yet, they've all deserted for whatever reason. So it's interesting, and you might have noticed a pattern here, 
that three of those were, and now really four, if you count to Shiva, were with Ran during the um, battle against the Shanchan when Sidene was being really weird. So I don't know if they were like mad at Rand. Well, see, even before then, like those three and and Shiva were all giving him like weird looks and stuff like that. So I don't really know if this was they attacked him because they were trying to warn him about Sidene being weird and he wouldn't listen and he made them fight anyway, or if there's some other plot going on that started before then that I don't know about, but something caused the these Ashaman to go against Rand and they probably would have killed him if he hadn't left. They definitely would have killed men. But anyway, there's still the problem of Fedwin Moore, who is clearly mad and very much a toddler, and Rand gives him a cup of something poisoned and he dies, and that was really, really, really fucking sad. Like, holy fuck. Wow. And then he tells Taim to add Deshiva to his list and then get the fuck out, and Taim gets the fuck out, and god, what a heavy scene that was, man. That was really, really hard for me to read. Okay, we're almost there. We're almost to the end. So the next chapter is called Beginnings, and not, like, some stuff happens, but not really enough. <laughs> um, so Perrin and, you know, some of his crew go to meet Masima. Masima agrees to go see the Dragon Reborn, but he refuses to travel, so now they have to go back on horseback or whatever. Um, Masima does not trust the One Power, which is stupid because... Rand literally channels the one power, and Rand is like his best friend in the world, so whatever. And then we switch perspectives to Fael, who is um, out like hunting or something with basically all of the main women in this group. Berylaine, Morghese, Aleandrin, she's got Morghese, she's got her two Aiel there. And they learn that Masima has been meeting with the Shanchan, and Fael's like, fuck, we gotta tell Perrin, like, right now. And before they can even go anywhere to tell Perrin, uh, they're attacked by the Shido, who take all of them prisoner. And the last we see of them, they're all like naked in the snow, being held prisoner or whatever. So something is definitely going to happen with that in the next book or two. Then we switch perspectives again to Egwene's army, and they are getting ready to gateway to Tarvalin. They have over a thousand novices alone at this point, which is crazy. And then 13 of the sisters make an enormous fucking gateway. And then Egwene runs in and her army follows. I'm so excited to see this go down. Hopefully in the next book, surely, right? They're not going to just leave me hanging for an entire book. And then the last chapter is pretty much just a big list of rumors that have been going around about Rand. Some of them are that there was a great battle at Tarvalin and Elida's head was on a pike. Some of the rumors are that there are Aes Sedai bound to Rand and the Ashaman. Interesting. Um, one of them is that Rand was kidnapped by the Shan Chan. They're all just kind of rumors. And then this is the last line, which I think is really interesting. Uh, let me just read the last paragraph. Across the nations, the story spread like spider webs laid upon spider web. The men and women planned the future, believing they knew the truth. They planned, and the pattern absorbed their plans, weaving toward the future foretold. Interesting. Oh my god, that's so interesting. That, to me, says that Regard, there's no there's no real agency in this world. Um, these people can make whatever plans they want. They can believe whatever truth they want. But the, at the end of the day, the pattern decides what happens. 
the pattern decides where the future of this world is going. And it's already, there's already a foretold future that they're going towards. I'm pretty sure that foretold future is that Rand goes to the last battle, dies, and the world is saved. But I'm sure there are a lot of things involved with that that I don't know about yet that are already well in progress. By the way, I forgot to mention that I recorded a live reaction to the end of this book. Here it is now. Enjoy. Hello, everyone. So I just finished The Path of Daggers, and I thought I would just get on here and kind of do a live reaction to the ending of the book. I haven't, like, prepared anything, and I don't know what I'm going to say. Um, I just thought it would be fun to kind of capture my initial thoughts about the end of this book. So the biggest part of this ending by far is the fact that some Ashaman have gone rogue and tried to kill Rand and those Ashaman are include Deshiva who I really liked so I'm really upset and then Taim shows up and he's like hey Deshiva, Gedwin, Rochade, I don't know if I'm saying that right I think Torval was one or something like that all of the Ashaman that went to Altera with Rand and fought against the Shanchan they're all deserting now, which is fucking terrifying because I'm pretty sure all of them are pretty powerful. But what I'm thinking is that since Deshiva is involved and we know he and Rand had a bit of a spat during that expedition, I'm thinking that they are upset that Rand did not take their concerns about Sidene seriously while they were there. And I don't know... I don't know if there's madness involved here or if they're just pissed off because they don't feel like they were being listened to or if, you know, the weirdness of Sidene actually did something to them while they were there. But it definitely has something to do with how difficult Sidene was to control there for sure because it's those four or whatever. Torvald was there, right? I'm pretty sure he was. But seriously, holy fuck. <laughs> I was not expecting that at all. That was so crazy. And then, of course, with Perrin, Perrin finally meets with Masima, and Masima agrees to go see Rand, but he won't travel through the gateways, which is so stupid. He's, like, so distrusting of the power, but Rand channels the power. That's literally the whole reason why he's the Dragon Reborn and needs to be quote-unquote followed. <laughs> But for some reason, Masima has problems with the the one power, so they're going to ride back, which will probably take a fucking eternity. Unless they hit him real hard and he passes out, then they can go through a gateway and be like, oh yeah, you were passed out for like a week, man. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. <laughs> anyway, while all that is happening, Fayil is being fucking kidnapped by Shido. And she's, like, fucking naked in the snow. And I think Berylaine also gets captured. And uh, Queen Aleandre is also captured uh, by the Shido and Savannah. So that's not good. <laughs> that's really bad. I don't know why I laughed. It's really bad. But I have a feeling that Perrin is going to do some, like, crazy nonsensical bullshit to get her back. Because... Let's be real, that's just the kind of marriage that they have. So I fully anticipate there to be some fuckery with getting Fayil back that I'm probably not going to enjoy very much because I can't stand Fayil, which you guys already know. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, and then we go to Egwene's perspective and she's like legitimately going through gate a gateway 
to get to Tarf Allen. I am so excited. I wasn't really expecting that whole shit to go down in the next book. I was thinking probably, well, I've heard Crossroads of Twilight is like not, <laughs> not the greatest of books. Um, but you know, maybe it would have been a knife of dreams or something like that. But I don't know. Or maybe we won't even hear from Egwene for a whole book, which has happened a couple of times um, with Perrin, and now Matt was not in this book. So it's very possible, ooh, I could cheat and look at the chapter icons. I won't. I won't right now. <laughs> I'll hit stop, and then I'll look. <laughs> uh, anyway, <laughs> uh, I am super fucking excited, as you guys know, to read that. <laughs> I was just thinking, I got off track, because I was just thinking... Man, if they're a rogue Ashaman, like, are are they gonna, like, band together? Are more people gonna desert to, like, join Dashiva and his little gang? And then all of a sudden we have all of these rebel Ashaman. Oh, fuck, that would be so bad. <laughs> oh, that would be so bad. Okay, anyway, um, that's my reaction to the end of the book. It wasn't very detailed or thorough, and that's fine because, uh, like I said, I'm not prepared for this. <laughs> I just finished the book, man. <laughs> like I mentioned earlier, um, there, there's a lot of just setup in this book. And it's some pretty big setup. So, for example, we have, I don't know, the Sean Chan and whatever's going to happen with them. We just saw them suffer a huge defeat. And now whatever's going to come next is going to be an enormous plot to get back at Rand for killing so many of their people. We also see the cleansing of the taint kind of get set up here, and I'm pretty sure that's going to happen, or Rand's going to try it at some point. So we are getting set up for whatever's going to happen with that. And then, of course, Egwene's army finally going into Tarvalon. That's going to be a huge setup for whatever happens in the next book or so. Holy cow. Okay, that's it. <laughs> That's it. That's my entire discussion of Path of Daggers. I thought that this book was so good. I see a little bit of slumpiness in it, but overall, I enjoyed a lot of the stuff that happened. I think a lot of the slumpiness might be because we spend so much time in one character's perspective. The only chapter where we really jump around a whole bunch is um, A Time for Iron and a, the uh, Fog of War, Storm of Battle, or whatever. Those two chapters where Rand is going up against the Sean Chan, those switch perspectives quite a bit. And then, you know, there was a lot of unnecessary squabbling and details that we didn't need to know, but some really big things happened in this book. And I didn't feel like the pacing suffered too much from the lack of perspective change. I don't really consider this slumpy at all. I really enjoyed it and I'm super excited to read the next one. So thank you guys so much for coming along on this journey with me. We are now finished with Path of Daggers and we can move on to book nine, which I've already kind of started reading and I'm so excited to go on to the next book and find out what happens with the Sean Chan and the Taint and Egwene and Rand and everything else. So thank you guys so much for listening. I hope you're all staying happy and healthy.